Hey everybody, welcome to The Afterword. I'm Dave Tish. The Afterword's where we talk about what we didn't get to talk about in the previous week's message. And I just want to say, just before we go any further, thank you guys so much for subscribing and, and tuning in every single week. It's just such a joy to get the emails and to hear from you guys. Just this past week, I was at the Student Ministries Student Camp, uh, the Gold Rush 2021 Student Camp, and I ran into, at the at the merch table, I ran into Claire and Bella and Marcella and Damaris, and you guys, just thanks for listening and thanks for doing what you're doing. Thanks for serving at the camp, and thank you guys for tuning in and listening. We're in week three of our sermon series, I'm Terrible with Names, which explores the names and the titles of Jesus. In this past week, we looked at one that is given most prominently by the author Matthew, where he calls Jesus the son of David. And we delved into what that means. And in Matthew's gospel, it's pretty clear. Matthew's trying to get us to see that some people see Jesus as the son of David, this messianic king, this promised king all the way back that was promised all the way back in 2 Samuel to King David. And some people miss him. So some people see Jesus as this king, and some people don't. Some people see Jesus as the Messiah, and other people don't. Ironically, it's blind people who see Jesus most clearly. And it's the religious leaders, the people who should know, who miss Jesus. And of course, Matthew is trying to get us to examine our own hearts. Do we miss Jesus? Are there times when we don't see him? Do we see him for who he truly is? And of course, Matthew is also getting us to see that the people who come to Jesus in full faith and in full desperation and in full hope, giving the entirety of their situation and their lives to Jesus, even if it seems like impossible, even if they're in a moment of crisis, those are the people who Jesus can really transform. And so there's an invitation there to let's be like the blind person. Let's be like the, the, the people that Jesus interacts with. In Matthew 8 and 9, Matthew presents different stories of people who come to Jesus in desperation and in hope. The man with leprosy, the centurion whose servant is hurt. Peter's mother-in-law, it says that many sick come to him. The garrisoned demon-possessed men, the paralyzed man on the mat, Levi the tax collector, the woman who was bleeding for 12 years, Jairus, the Jewish leader whose daughter is sick, is, is dying, is dead. Um, and, and of course, the blind people that we looked at in Matthew 9, and then the demon-possessed person who was mute in, in Matthew 9. All 12 of these, all of these stories, I count 12, 12 different stories of people who are come to Jesus with a crisis and then are utterly transformed by their encounter with Jesus, giving us, of course, reason to reflect on our own lives. Do we come to Jesus and present the fullness of our entire lives to him? And so in thinking about that, I thought a very profitable and good thing to do would be to go back to our Recharge Conference. A couple of weeks ago, we had Westgate's Summer Recharge Conference, and we invited people to come and just talk and eat together. And during that time, Joshua Ryan Butler flew in from Phoenix, where he currently pastors. He's an author and a speaker and a good friend of ours. And he spoke about precisely this topic, what it means to bring your full self before God, what it means to actually encounter God in this way. And his talk was so profoundly helpful and moving for me personally as he was speaking. I thought it would be profitable and helpful for us just to play that. Again, as Matthew invites us to bring our whole lives before Jesus, just like the blind people, just like the Syrophoenician woman, just like um, all the people who encounter Jesus in Matthew 8 and 9, 
um, so should we bring our whole lives before Jesus. And Joshua Ryan Butler's talk, I think, helps us get there. So I'm just going to play the audio from that conference session. During the middle, there's a time for a reflection where Joshua asks some questions and just has us think and reflect. So I invite you to do that. And there's just two parts, part one, and then a brief break, and then part two. So so join us as we dive in, and let's listen to Joshua Ryan Butler's sessions. Hi, you guys. Man, so good to see you. Welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, what a gift. I, I feel like I say this every time I'm up here with you all. What a gift to be able to be together, to worship together, to be in the presence of God together. This conference is called the Recharge Conference because wherever you're at today, and I know we're at all sorts of places, some of you guys are like experiencing the highest of highs and others of us the lowest of lows or somewhere in between. I think all of us, uh, especially as we look back on the past year, but even further than that, I think we could all agree um, a recharge is, uh, is much needed. And so um, today and tomorrow is going to be exactly that, just as Chris and Shalene and Sonny led us tonight, that uh, we want to give you ample opportunity to breathe and to experience the Spirit of God bringing you back to life, a sort of resurrection uh, in, in brand new, fresh ways. And so tonight we thought, man, there, there's no better way to kick it off than to hear from a dear, dear friend of ours. I met Joshua Ryan Butler probably six or seven years ago, and um, Josh is one of those rare uh, rare people who is a mix, this beautiful mix of a brilliant theological mind and this expansive heart for the Lord, um, a deep love for the scriptures and such an abiding openness to the Spirit of God and what the Spirit of God is doing. And so when I think about recharge, when I think about breathing in the Spirit of God and coming to life, Josh is one of the people I think about because he doesn't just write about it and teach about it, although he does those things really well. He lives it. And I've uh, shared many meals and many conversations over the, over the years with Josh. And uh, what you're going to see tonight is what you get with him all the time, um, because he has a deep love, again, for the scriptures and an openness to the spirit of God. Josh is the lead pastor of Redemption Church in Tempe, Arizona. He's the author of books like Skeletons and God's Closet, which we uh, reference here like twice a week, and uh, The Pursuing God. And again, one of the most brilliant minds I know and one of the most open-hearted, genuine followers of Jesus I know. And I think we're all going to be thoroughly blessed tonight but what, by what the Lord has to say through him. So would you please give a warm Westgate welcome to Joshua Ryan Butler. Thanks, Well, good evening, Westgate. Man, it is so good to be with you guys. And I mean that... Uh, had the honor of privilege of being with you guys a couple times in the past, and I've always loved it, and so it was fun getting to fly into SJC today and get to come and be with you all. Now, I know for all of us, it's been a crazy last year and a half, uh, so that's kind of a common national and global experience, but uh, for myself personally, this last season, this last few months has actually been really refreshing. There has been some 
fresh stuff I feel like God's been doing in my heart out of, just to be honest, what was a really rough last year and a half prior. And so just to share a few things tonight that have really been encouraging and refreshing and recharging for me that I feel like God's been doing in my spirit. And I always have the reflection that I think sometimes we can treat Christianity like a commission-based job, where your performance determines your pay, the pay you take home. And your salary is determined by your sales and your success, right? And we can start to approach God like that, like God's the heavenly boss. And so God, hey boss, like I want to grow in my faith. I want to kind of bring home more of you, more of you in my life. So how do I do that? And God's just like, well, you got to raise your sales. You know, like how's far are you in that Bible reading plan you've been working through this year, right? Uh, I kind of gave up at Leviticus. Well, hey, no, if you want to grow, you got to raise your sales. You know, you know. All right, well, God, actually, I'm in kind of a dry season right now. Marriage is a bit rough. My kids are in a difficult spot. And man, can, can I, I, I can really feel dry. Well, God, could you help me out here? Well, hey, your numbers have been kind of low lately. Like, you got to raise your sales, right? Like, how's your fasting going? Have you been praying? Have you been, uh, your tithing records look a little low, you know, like, and you're like, okay, well, then God, like, you hit these moments just going, God, you feel distant. You feel absent. And man, I know I've been trying, but I know I'm just exhausted. And we can have this image of God, again, it's kind of the heavenly boss who's still just going, you got to raise your sales. You got to increase your performance. You got to increase your output. Raise your sales, God, you know, like, and it feels like that's God sometimes for some of us is our, our heavenly boss with that kind of mindset. And as we approach spiritual formation and the spiritual practices, I'd suggest that mindset and approach can be very destructive because we can start to approach them as this to-do list of things we've got to do. We've kind of get in our chops that these are ways that we perform. And so that on the other side, God will eventually give us more pay. And I want to suggest to you tonight that that's actually backwards, that who God is in the gospel actually reshapes and reframes how we approach spiritual formation, how we approach practices where these are not places we go to perform for God, but rather places we go to be present to God. These are not things we do to kind of earn how much we're going to get, but rather places that we come to receive from God himself. And if you're like me, man, I... I need you, God. I need your life, your presence. And uh, so we want to look today at uh, what my wife and I call, uh, we like to call it rather than spiritual formation, we like to call it spirit formation. And the reason why is that I think sometimes when we hear the word or the phrase spiritual formation in our culture today, we can tend to associate that with kind of like, okay, here's these things we're going to kind of go do on my own and that's going to help improve my life. It's going to be kind of improve the kind of person I am, make me a better person person and then that means that God down the road is going to help bless me, give me more things or whatever, or show up more regularly in my life. And the reason I like the language of spirit formation is it confronts that going, no, these are practices that we do to uh, place ourselves before the presence of Jesus himself and allow his spirit to shape and to form us and to work on us as his people. So the format tonight is I, I, I want to, we're going to have two movements, we're going to have some discussion between, but I want to, both of them, I want to talk about who God is and how that shapes how we approach a particular practice. Um, so uh, heads up where we're going. So the first move, we're going to look at how the pursuing God 
forms us through honest prayer. And the second movement, we'll look at how the filling God forms us through listening prayer. How the pursuing God forms us through honest prayer and how the filling God forms us through listening prayer. So let's jump in with uh, the pursuing God. Uh, So if we start with the pursuing God, that our God, the God of the gospel is a pursuing God. That the gospel is not about us going out to find God, it's about God coming out to find us, which confronts the way many times in our culture that we tend to assume we need to approach God. We often treat God as if he's lost, he's gone missing, he is out in the universe somewhere, he's kind of hiding behind the cosmic couch or something, you know, and he's maybe left a trail of breadcrumbs, but it's on us to go out searching for God. So we talk about things like searching for God, exploring spirituality, finding faith. And yet what the gospel reveals is that God moves in the other direction, that Jesus reveals that God is the pursuing God who is coming after us and our world. That uh, in the gospel we find that it's not so much about us ascending the cosmic mountain to go out and find and attain to God. It's rather God who has come down the mountain to draw close to us. And the question for us is really, do we want to be found? Coming out of the bushes, coming out of hiding, the things that we use to kind of cover over and cloak ourselves and hide ourselves with. The question the gospel asks is not so much can you find the light, go out and turn on the light switch. Rather, it's that Jesus, the light of the world, has come into the world. Are we willing to step out of the shadows and be seen and truly known as we are? We see this throughout the biblical story. To give you just kind of three quick images, I think one in Genesis uh, 3, it's interesting to me that when Adam and Eve first sinned, they first kind of bite the forbidden fruit and uh, their trust with God is broken. It's interesting to look at who runs and who pursues. That when sin enters the world, Adam and Eve, they go and they hide in the bushes, they cover themselves with leaves. And God's pursuit, God is like uh, the the heavenly father, uh, the, the divine parent out pounding down the neighbor's doors, calling out the question, where are you? Where are you? God is the heavenly father looking for his lost and wandering children when sin enters the world. Now, it's true he has to boot them out of the garden, but the reason we're given is lest they eat of the tree of life and be essentially stuck this way forever, that even there God is uh, sustaining us in the midst of our condition to come out and redeem us ultimately through Christ on the cross. So let's take that as scene one. Sinners the world, Genesis 3, and God's not the one running, we are. God's the one coming out asking, where are you? Scene two, Mount Sinai where Moses in Exodus, he comes down the mountain and he is radiating, reflecting the glory of God's presence. It's a high priestly image. This is the image of God's glory is now coming down the mountain into the presence of his sinful and rebellious people. And the people turned and came back and they they fled. They kind of hid their face from the presence of God. They, They wanted Moses to put a veil over it to protect them from the radiance of God's presence. And some of the language and the imagery that's used in this scene it actually echoes and reflects the language of Adam and Eve hiding and covering themselves with leaves. Now Israel is covering over the presence of God with the veil to kind of protect themselves. So once more, we see that God is coming down the mountain. God is coming for his people and they're retreating in sin and alienation and rebellion and fear. The third scene I give you is in John 3.16, kind of the classic, probably most famous Bible verse, right? Uh, but that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And as Jesus steps into the world, as the divine word became flesh, Jesus is 
God stepping, walking through the neighborhood, looking for his lost and wandering children, calling out, where are you? Jesus is the glory of God coming down the mountain, reflecting and shining the radiance of God's presence. And John tells us, in John, just after that in John 3.16, he says, our problem is not that we weren't good enough, not that we weren't smart enough, not that we couldn't jump high enough, not that we hadn't done enough spiritual practice, not that we hadn't all that. He says the problem was that we loved darkness rather than light. And so what the gospel reveals to us is that our God, the God of the universe, is a pursuing God who is coming after his lost and rebellious world and us as his wandering children. And the question that we're faced with before the gospel is not whether we've been good enough to find God, but whether we want to be found. One of my favorite stories for this is in Luke 15, where Jesus gives his famous uh, lost parables. And uh, the first one, the famous story of the lost sheep, where in verse 4, Jesus tells the people this. He says, suppose one of you has 100 sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And I love that question. So suppose you got, I don't know, let's say you're the shepherd. We'll call him Billy, right? So Billy the shepherd, he's out watching his hundred sheep one day and suddenly he realizes Jesus, you know, that, that, that he's lost one. And Jesus asks the obvious question, like, wouldn't you go out and find it? And I, reality is, no, probably not, right? Like that's actually kind of in the ancient world, that's sort of bad math because if Billy leaves the 99 and goes out to find the one, He's actually leaving the 99 open and vulnerable to like robbers or bear attacks or wolves or predators. Like he might come back to 99 problems and a sheep just one, right? Like it's one. And so I imagine as Jesus asks this question, know it all Joe in the back kind of raises his hand and he's like, no, Jesus, you count your losses. You let the one go and you keep the 99. But God missed economics 101. God is a God who's coming after us as lost and wandering sheep. And Jesus continues this. So there's the lost sheep and then there's a woman searching for a lost coin. And then finally there's a father searching for his lost sons. And what we find in all of them is that the heart of the story is not about the sheep going out to find the shepherd. It's about the shepherd going out to find the sheep. It's not about the coin going out to find the woman. No one expects, you and I, we're like the hunk of rusty metal sitting under the couch cushions, right? Like, like no one's expecting the coin to go out and find the lady. Sometimes we use the language of lost in a kind of condescending way, like lost are the foolish outsiders who need to get their act together and go find God, go start doing their spiritual practices, go to church, tithe, pray, do whatever, you know. And the funny thing is Jesus uses the word lost the exact opposite direction. Lost doesn't mean you need to go out and find God. Lost means God's coming out to find you. That you wouldn't actually be lost if someone wasn't looking for you, right? So... All this is to say that God is the pursuing God who comes after us. Now, in my own life, this was foundational to my story of encountering Jesus. I was in college, University of Oregon. And I said, all right, Jesus, I want to I try this thing. So I went to a campus minister and said, how do I follow God? And they said, well, hey, you do music. Uh, why don't you lead worship at our weekly Monday night college gathering? I'm like, all right, like, I don't know that I'm a Christian yet, but okay. So I'm like leading worship at this thing. And God still felt kind of distant. So I was like, well, what's next? And they're like, well, are you studying your Bible? We got this Thursday night Bible study. So I jumped in there and that was good, but God still felt almost more distant. So I'm like, what's next? And they're like, 
well, are you praying? We've got a 6 a.m. Wednesday morning prayer gathering. So I'm like, all right, try that. So I go to the 6 a.m. prayer gathering and my roommates are all hung over and just like, what are you doing, dude? I'm like, I'm gonna go pray, you know? And, and then I still felt empty and they're like, well, are you sharing your faith? So they gave me a stack of tracks and unleashed me like a wolf on campus and all my unsuspecting victims, you know, let's talk about God. And, and I had a lot of great conversations with folks, but here was the catch point too. In my mind, it was like, um, God is waiting to make sure I'm all in. And if I just do enough of the stuff, then when he knows I'm all in, then I'm going to encounter his presence. And so I, I was doing all this stuff, but the, the irony was the more stuff I was doing for God, the further away God seemed. And the catch point too is I had a lot of people around me now who were going like, oh my gosh, look at Josh, he's on fire for Jesus. And I didn't want to let them down. So, so I kept on doing all the stuff and, and, you know, to make a long story short, like it wound up after a year of that, that summer, I, I decided, God, uh, I was kind of wrestling through it and, um, and I was ready to be done with it. So I had this three day experience, uh, doing lawn care in a backyard. I was uprooting all of these shrubs and trees and flowers, just basically uprooting this backyard by myself. And it was August, it was hot. And in retrospect, it felt kind of symbolic. I'm tearing out all these deep shrubs and roots and things. And sometimes I'm kind of digging up all these deep roots in my soul. And God, I tried it. It didn't work. You're not there. You haven't showed up. And I'm just venting, you know. And, and I kind of get to the end where I'm surrounded by all this uprooted dust and dirt and death. After three days in this backyard, I'm all sweaty and dirty and hot and tired. And, uh, and I finally, I just said, F it, God. Like, God, if this is who you are, I want nothing to do with you. And gave him the finger. And it wasn't like I was going to change my mind the next day, right? Like this was the climax of this process. Like I tried this and it didn't work. And I don't know if it was a minute later or an hour later, but I just remember for the first time in my life, finding myself surrounded by the presence of Christ. It was like being in the room with the king, like being caught up in the spirit with, with God Almighty. And what I heard Jesus say to me was, Josh, you've had this whole thing backwards. Like you thought this was about you coming out to find me. And the whole time I've been the one coming out to find you. And I realized, I think God was actually intentionally not allowing me to find him through all the stuff I was trying to do from this kind of performance mindset to achieve and earn my way like to go, God, here, here's how great, you know, I, I've done it, I've, I've reached you. So that he could meet me and encounter me in my brokenness and my inability in other places, and suddenly all the, the, the word grace, just like, ah, oh, it's grace, I get it. And I remember uh, verses starting to come to life, like Ephesians, where Paul says, it's by grace through faith you've been saved. That's not of yourselves. And I realized, I've had it backwards. I thought it was by faith through grace. Like, God, I bring you my faith. I show you how serious I am. I show you all the things I'm willing to do. And when I do that, then that creates this channel where you're willing to give me your grace. I know it's backward. God is gracious goodness. And faith is getting our eyes off ourselves to receive the God who's come for us in Christ. So that radically reshifted things. And so God is the pursuing God. And the question that raises for us is not are we good enough to get to him, but rather do we want to be found? Do you want to be found? And I would suggest to you that the spiritual practices, spiritual formation and practices like prayer and uh, some of the other things that, that we'll be talking about, that these are um, not ways that we perform 
for God, but rather places to be present to God and to essentially go, yeah, I want to be found and to receive his pursuit of us. Uh, that radically changes the game in terms of what, what's going on there. I think makes the, the, these practices beautiful and life-giving. As has been said, I love uh, Dallas Willard kind of famously said, uh, like, grace is not opposed to working, but it is opposed to earning, right? And so grace is, uh, it's opposed to us kind of performing for God, but that doesn't mean that there's not work we can do, good work to, to kind of, yes, God, I want to come out of the shadows and you be, stand honestly before you, the light of the world has come to me. And so what I want to look at, particularly an implication for this, is what I would call honest prayer. Right? That the pursuing God forms us through honest prayer. Now, when I say honest prayer, that adjective, honest, that, that's intentional. Um, I love the way uh, Kyle Strobel and John Coe, they put it in their book, I think it's called Where Prayer Prayer Becomes Real, but talk about how uh, the purpose of prayer, prayer is not a place that we go to be good, it's a place that we go to be honest. Let me say that again, let us think here. Like prayer is not a, a place where we seek to be good before God, it's a place where we seek to be honest before God. Another way they put it is, prayer is not something we do to perform for God, it's something that we do to be present to God. And I believe this is wrapped up in the gospel of the pursuing God. If this is not, prayer is not like a thing that we do to, to get to God. Prayer is a way that we respond to God's pursuit in our lives that we receive when we come honestly before him. Uh, that it becomes powerful to say, this is no longer a place where I feel like uh, I have to hide or have to posture or present myself as something other than I really am. The invitation is to come before God as we really are and to commune with him in the midst of all of our mess and our brokenness and our sinful, idol-ridden, crazy hearts, like to bring that stuff before God. Now, I love Jesus talks about this a little later in Luke 18. When he talks about, uh, he contrasts the prayer of a uh, tax collector and a Pharisee. And what we find in the Pharisee is a picture of prayer as performance. What we find as the tax collector is a picture of prayer as honesty before God. This is Luke 18, uh, verse 10, where Jesus says, uh, this parable, he says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. So the Pharisee is praying his performance, right? He's going, God, look at what I've done for you. Like I have uh, done all this, like God, I'm pursuing you. I've given this much for you. I have done this many things for you. I have, and he's, when you do that, you tend to kind of judge and compare yourself to other people. Like, look how much better I am than that person and the sin they're doing. Look how much better than that person, how little they've done. And, how, and he's elevating himself up by pushing others down. And he's trying to stand before God on his own two feet going, God, look how good I am. And so he sees prayer as a place to be good before God, to posture before God, to perform for God with his own greatness. But going on, verse 13, Jesus says, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. We find in the tax collector, unlike the Pharisees, that he sees prayer as a place to humble himself before God and to be honest with God with where he's really at. To come in a posture of honesty rather than his own goodness. To come in a posture of being present to God with where he really is, where he's really at rather than performance. I believe this is how God invites us and desires us to come before him. And God loves to meet us here in this place of honest prayer. It reminds me of uh, Jim and Misha, I'm sorry, Jim and Sarah, this this couple. You know, we're part of a kind of foster care movement. And uh, so Jim and Sarah uh, were uh, decided we want to step in. We love Jesus. And one of the avenues for that for us, we we want to become foster parents. So they became foster parents. And Misha was placed with them in their home. And Misha came from a tragic backstory. She had uh, been trafficked. She was a teenager. She had been trafficked uh, sexually in the sex industry and came in with a lot of abuse, a lot of trauma, a lot of baggage. And uh, when she first came into their home, though, for Jim and Sarah, there was kind of the honeymoon period where it was like the first few days, like, oh, my gosh, we're so glad you're here. And she's, I'm so glad I'm here. And everything was great. Uh, But as the days went on, things started to unravel and get rough, um, that Misha would be uh, extremely um, cruel to Sarah. She would call her all sorts of names and things, you know. Uh, Mom wasn't one of them, right? Like all all sorts of crazy names. But with Jim, it was the opposite. She would kind of even flirt with him and and show him a lot of lavish attention and all that um, just because she had learned from her history, like that's how you find safety and security and protection with, with men. And Jim wouldn't buy into it or wouldn't, wouldn't play into it, but there was still down this, this tension in their home. So this went on for months. And so uh, Jim and Sarah were just wrestling, man, this is harder than we anticipated. How do we navigate this? How do we deal with this? So finally, about six months in, they said, we need a break. We need a date night. Let's, let's, let's get out. Let's go. We're going to care for our marriage. So they hired a babysitter. Babysitter came over. They went on the town. They got like amazing dinner drinks, the works. They had a blast out, kind of dressed the nines and a lot of laughter, a lot of fun. They felt so good. They came home just feeling rested and refreshed. Well, when they came home, uh, the babysitter said, hey, Misha was great. Everything was great. They're like, oh, thank goodness. Okay, that's good. So they felt relieved. And then as they went upstairs and started getting ready for bed, Jim walked into the bathroom and he said, oh no, like Sarah, don't come in here. And Sarah, curious, came running over to the bathroom door just as Jim was trying to close it and kind of put her, you know, put her foot in and, and you know, and, and pulled the, the door open to see what, what, what is it Jim was trying to not let her see in there. And what they saw was that uh, Misha had taken Sarah's red lipstick and she had scrawled all over the bathroom mirror and all over the bathroom walls, F-U, mom, F-U, mom, F-U, mom. And Jim was thinking inside, like, dude, this is it. Like, this is going to break. Sarah, it's been so hard. We tried, like, we just can't, we can't do this anymore. Like, we're just done. And, and you know, and, and Jim's just thinking, man, I wish I could have gotten the door closed before she got here and scrubbed it down and just kind of, maybe this was a mistake all to begin with and all that. But then he turns, and to his surprise, Sarah is chuckling. And it starts as kind of a slow chuckle. And gradually the drip 
becomes a waterfall and she begins to roar with laughter to the point that she is falling over onto the ground on the bathroom floor and just like laughing hysterically. And Jim is like, oh my gosh, she's cracked. Like, you know, like this just did it. We pushed things over the edge. Oh man, I knew this was a mistake, you know. And she's laughing and he's just confused, staring at his wife like, what? And you can't even get the words out. And finally he's just like, Sarah, what is so funny? And through her laughter and her tears, Sarah gets out. She called me mom. She called me mom. It was the first time that Misha had called her mom. And I love how God loves our angry prayers. Because I think the reality is that sometimes you and I, we approach prayer more like Jim, right? Like where we feel like we need to protect God from seeing the dirty, crazy things that are scrawled across the walls and the bathroom of our heart, you know? And so we want to kind of keep that door closed, keep God out until we can get kind of the Windex and the Clorox and whatever and scrub it down and scrub out on the windows, scrub out the bathtub, scrub down the walls, like clean out the place, and then we'll let God in. And maybe if we're courageous, we might kind of leave a little post-it note on the, on the window that says, you know, hey, God, I kind of had a, kind of a little bit of a bad day, right? Uh, but we often feel like we want to protect and need to protect God from seeing the craziness that's going on inside the walls of our heart. But the reality is that you and I are much more like Misha. Like we live in a fallen, trauma-ridden, tragic, crazy world, and it's left its marks and its wounds on us. And we've been a part of it too. Like we're a mess because stuff that's been done to us and the stuff that we've done and it's, it's left us. The reality is our hearts are a lot more like Misha's. But the beauty of the gospel is that God is much more like Sarah. Right? That God not only is, can handle, but invites the raw honesty of our heart. And I believe that God crumples over in a mess of laughter and tears and just rejoices and delights when we come to him as father. That we would call him father and that we would bring who we really are and where we're really at before him. Like the pursuing God forms us through honest prayer. Not through trying to be good, cleaned up, sparkly Clorox cleanse prayer, you know, but like honest prayer. Now, there is a reality that if like, 10 years later, Misha's still cussing out her mom, you know, like this is like the regular practice, you know, then, okay, maybe there's something wrong. Like over time, there's growth and there's trust and there's intimacy and we call it sanctification. Like there's, there's growth that develops in our life with God. But the foundation for that is coming to God as we really are. And the foundation that is being able to approach God honestly with honest prayer. And so practically, uh, what, I, what I believe that... This, this means is, um, and that I, would, that I would want to encourage us with is, with spiritual formation, prayer is one practice we can do, and that it changes the game for me, and I believe it can change the game for you when we come to God with our honesty rather than our goodness, right? 
Um, I love uh, Kyle Strobel and John Coe again in that book, when, Where Prayer Becomes Real. They talk about even the practice of wandering prayer that I found helpful. And the idea here was kind of going like, dude, often when you're praying, you can feel like, okay, I got to, um, you know, I, I, I got to just pray about holy things. And then your mind starts to wander to this thing that, you know, my kids have this thing coming up and, oh my gosh, this person's angry. And you can feel like that wandering mind is a distraction. And so you try and like, oh, I got to force it. And finally you just kind of give up, right? But the invitation is actually like part of honest prayer is actually if your mind wanders, let it wander and begin to pray about the things that it's wandering to. Because the things that your attention and mind is wandering to, it's probably a good sign of where your heart is at. Like some of the things that are concerning for you right now or even rejoicing for you right now are things that, the things that are on your heart that you can begin to pray into and bring before God. So think honesty, like allowing your mind to wander and to just pray into those things. Let those things guide your prayer at times can be one way of doing things. I think also context. I found, if you're like me, I, I, I'm horrible at like kind of sitting down, folding my hands, you know, and getting on my knees. And like, I just get so distracted. I can't concentrate. And I've found all the time over the years that I pray best as I'm walking. So for me lately in this season with a lot of young, you know, we've got a lot of young kids. And so when everybody's asleep and in bed, that's where I'll often go for my nightly walk and being able to just process as I'm moving, as I'm looking out, processing with God and bringing my heart honestly before him. Um, and so I'd love for us to take some time around tables right now and have some discussion around this. Uh, the pursuing God forms us through honest prayer. And so I invite you to discuss uh, these two questions. The first is, do you tend to approach prayer more as a place to be good or a place to be honest? Uh, you can be honest around the table. Like, what, what, what do you associate prayer with? What are some of the struggles or the challenges that you have with prayer? Do you, you know, struggle, struggles to, do you see it more as a place to be good or be honest? And if you have time, the second question I invite you to reflect on is even just big picture. How might knowing God as the pursuing God change how you approach prayer and spiritual formation and practices. Does that change the game in any way in, in terms of how you're approaching that? So let's break uh, and discuss around your tables for a bit. All right, let's, uh, let's bring it back in. Awesome, it's good to be together talking, huh? Face to face, man. Okay, so the pursuing God forms us through honest prayer. And now we're talking about how the filling God forms us through listening prayer. Uh, the filling God forms us through listening prayer. So I'm struck here by Ephesians 5, kind of a classic famous verse in uh, verse 18, where Paul uh, says, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And at first glance, it's really kind of a strange command. Um, there's a buddy of mine, Andrew Wilson, who kind of makes up like, how do you do something passive, right? Like, he knows how, it's one thing if I say to you, hey, call your mom. Maybe you should do that right now. Give your mom a call, right? But the only thing if I say to you, hey, be called by your mom. <laughs> You're kind of going, how, how do I be called by my mom? Like, how do I do, how do I, it's one thing that says fill yourself, but he doesn't say, it says be filled by the Spirit. How do you do that? And I think for a number of us, this can be kind of a confusing image too. Uh, one of the reasons I think it's confusing is often when we think about this image, like being filled with the spirit, I think we often have a liquid image in mind, 
right? So if you think of like a glass of water or a glass of wine, or something, you're kind of filling up the glass and once it's filled, it's full, right? And so some people wrestle with the question of like, well, if God gave me his presence, if he gave me his spirit, if he filled me with his spirit, then I got it. Why do I need to be filled with it again? We can get kind of confused. And here's the observation I think is really helpful is that actually in the original language, the word spirit, it's the same word as breath or wind. And once we shift from kind of a liquid metaphor or analogy or image to a breath or air or wind image, it suddenly makes it a lot more sense, right? Like you would never say, uh, hey, I got filled with breath back in the day, so I don't need to get any more breath in me now. <laughs> like, like, dude, you're going to have to do CPR or something if that's you, right? Like, no, like, yes, we've been filled with the breath of God, like God's breath, his presence, his spirit. And yet we want to continually inhale and thrive off of and live off of God's animating presence. The challenge, if you're like me, is I think we can get into life and just kind of the hard knocks and things come and the exhaustion and things get hitting and it can just start to feel in our spiritual lives and just in life in general, like we're, we're rowing in the, in the, in the sailboat, you know, like we're rowing in the boat and um, God, like I'm, I'm trying so hard. I, 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 my, my kids are a mess. Like my, my job is going down the, 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 it's just work has been so hard and people, I mean, my friend betrayed me and, and we just feel like, man, I'm rowing God and I'm tired. I'm angry. And I'm trying to read the Bible, but I just don't get it. And I'm doing all this stuff and I'm, and God, where are you? Like, how are you? leaving me just so out here exhausted and straining and life doesn't seem to be working and where are you God and then I believe we hear the voice of Jesus calling out to us in raise your sails like raise your sails you're in a sailboat like stop rowing and start sailing right like like raise your sails, only this is different from the commission-based job because in the commission-based job, it's going, you got to raise your sails. Like you got to go perform in order to get paid. And here it's going, no, God's going, I want to pour into you. So raise your sails so that you can receive my presence, my posture towards you, my gift to you of my very self through my spirit. Raise your sails to be filled with the spirit. Now, the reality is when you raise your sail in a sailboat, you can't control the wind blowing. You can't force the wind blowing. You can't make the wind blowing. So when you, when we do these first part, we can't force God to do whatever, but here's the beauty of the gospel is that God loves to blow. God loves to blow his breath, the breath of his spirit into our lungs. He loves to fill our sails. He loves, yes, there are some seasons that are like the dark night of the soul and that are hard. And that, that, that's a reality we see in scripture and throughout church history. But Generally speaking, like God is a God who loves to blow the fresh wind of his presence and his breath into our lives. I love how Paul continues here as he, I think, unpacks this saying, be filled with the Spirit. Uh, he precedes that saying, uh, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. And there, he's not saying wine's bad. There's a rich biblical theology. You know, like we, we see wine throughout scripture. There's good uses. But, uh, but there, it can be abused, right? I think he's saying don't try and numb the pain and the exhaustion and whatever else in your life by just trying to numb it with whether substances or entertainment or whatever else. Like don't numb over what's really going on in your heart with just addiction or substances or, or things that lead to just sort of numbing where you're really at, but rather be filled with God's presence to minister to you 
in those areas of exhaustion, of wounding, of frustration. And he goes on saying, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And I believe what he's given us there is here's how to raise your sails. Like here's a couple of ways to raise yourself, to, to be filled with the Spirit is, man, when you sing and celebrate who God is, and I love my wife, she's always just walking around the house singing Jesus, God, you are, you know, I'm, my voice ain't that good. So like I hear her and I'm like, what are you doing? But she, like her celebrating and lifting up who God is, it changes your posture and demeanor when you worship in essence, right? Like, like worshiping God, celebrating who he is, like throughout our day when we're working, whatever we do, we can celebrate who God is. When he says, uh, he talks here about Thanksgiving, giving thanks to God, just the practice of, Thank you, God, that I got breath in my lungs. Thank you that, man, thanking God for the things in our life, even the little things and paying attention, gratitude tends to fill our sails with, it's hard to be thankful to God for what he's done and not experience that presence of God's spirit. And he talks about how we relate to others, submitting to one another, the, the, the spiritual formation, how we treat one another in the body of Christ and beyond, submitting, laying our lives down for one another, giving up our preferences for the sake of others. These are ways that we posture our lives to be filled with God's spirit, God's presence. Well, another way that I, I want to uh, invite you into, and it's been really meaningful for me, particularly in this last few years of life, is uh, the practice of listening prayer. Right? Uh, listening prayer. So we talked about honest prayer before. And honest prayer, there we were talking more about us bringing where we're really at before God. But with listening prayer, I'm talking more about opening ourselves to be present to what God may have to speak in to us, what God may have and desire to say to us. Because I believe that two of the ways God loves to speak into our lives are through his word and his spirit. Throughout scripture, we see that God is always acting, always moving through his word and his spirit. At the very beginning of creation, Genesis 1, we see that the spirit of God was hovering over the chaos, hovering over the darkness, hovering over the nothing, hovering over the waters. And so the spirit is there, his presence, and then his word speaks in, let there be, and there was. There's light, there's creation gets formed through God's word and through God's spirit. By your word, the psalmist says, the, the heavens were made and, the, uh, and, and by the breath or the spirit of your mouth. God creates, he moves, he lives, he acts in, his life, in our lives through his word and through his spirit. Now I know when we talk about the spirit of God, you know, like, uh, and what it means to like listen to the spirit and all, I know that that can uh, raise some red flags for some of us are kind of going, whoa, whoa, what are you, what are you talking about? Is this kind of going kooky or crazy or what are you talking about here, Josh? And so I want to suggest to you this uh, friend of mine, Jim and I, we were brainstorming recently and I was just seeing this spectrum to kind of help say there's dangers on both sides. And this is sort of our word spirit spectrum, right? So uh, on your left side is sort of the tension of word without spirit. And on your right side is sort of your spirit without word. And what we're aiming for, I think for a healthy biblical uh, reality is kind of this middle ground of word and spirit, right? So when I say like on the uh, right side here, like spirit disconnected from word at the extreme level, it can kind of go like flags and snakes, right? Like, so by that, I mean, I don't know, maybe you've seen, but like, you know, the, the big flags and snake handling, you're kind of holding, you know, like, dude, if you really have faith, you can hold the poisonous snake, it'll bite you, it'll be fine. And, and just like, yeah, you don't, we're not, I'm not saying that, right? Like, I'm not saying 
Don't hear me as saying, hey, we're listening to the spirit. Let's go on flags and snakes, right? <laughs> but on, somebody likes this. It's good. <laughs> but on the other side, word without spirit, I would say, I, I tried to be appropriate, but really I'm not about to stick up the butt, right? Like stick up backside where there can be some circles that are like, it's kind of like, is this proper, appropriate, like, it's all analysis, it's all reason, rationality, logic, like trying to make sure everything, and there's like any, there's a suspicion of anything that has to do with the experience, God. Suspicion of anything that has to do with the affections or the desires or heart with God. There's a, can be kind of a cold logical rationality, but that is void of the experience of God's presence, right? So don't want to be stick up the backside either, right? Now, I'd say most of us are not Flags and snakes or sticks of the back. These are just kind of the extreme, kind of outline the spectrum, right? But I'd say there are maybe more uh, further in on the spectrum tendencies that hit a little closer to home. I know they do in my life. Um, on the spirit without word side, you know, I, I think a lesser version of this can be the God told me, right? Where it's kind of like we're using listening prayer. Let's say we're using the spirit language to hit, Hey, God told me you need to this, or God told me you need that. You know, like, and we can at times use spirit language to manipulate others. Or we can use it to try and get our way. We can, we can use it in ways that I've talked with so many people over the years that have maybe been in certain environments where they felt like spirit of God language was used in ways that felt oppressive and manipulative and just they, they've got a lot of baggage because of those experiences. And one of the things I often counsel people, this is like, don't say like God told me, but maybe say like, dude, I feel like God might be saying, like I was praying for you. And, I, and, and that's biblical because the Bible talks about testing words and like testing them against scripture, testing them against your own discernment. And then so somebody says something to you, like God told me, like you have not only the freedom, but even the responsibility to try and discern like, okay, God, is that really you? And you have the freedom to go, no, I, I, don't, I don't think that is, right? And so when we talk with people and don't say like God told me manipulative language, we say like, I feel like I'm saying what you're really implicitly doing is creating space for them to exercise their own discernment, right? Uh, and as we do listening prayer for ourselves, like to exercise our own discernment as well with, okay, yeah, Jesus is you. But on the other side here, further in on the, the other side is the uh, edge of the pool. What I mean by that is kind of uh, maybe more common in circles. I, I tend to be in, uh, I'd say like open but cautious, right? Which is where you're kind of hanging on the edge of the pool and you're like, dude, I can feel the water and it looks nice. And I kind of see people swimming in it, but I'm a little, I don't know if I can trust it. I don't know if I'm ready to kind of like let go of the edge and jump in. And here's the thing about the open but cautious, I'd say is uh, this is probably the least biblical position, right? Like, like you can believe that the gifts of the spirit are no longer operative. And that, yeah, I think you can make a case for that. But if you believe that God is still speaking and moving, Jesus ascended to the right hand of God, giving us the spirit as present, ministering to his people through the spirit today, then being cautious about that is probably the least biblical thing you could do versus being proactive about Jesus, you are ascended on high and I want to pursue your presence in my life. I want to hear from you. I want to know you. I want to walk with you. I want to experience you. Jesus in our life and in our community and that we would actually be proactive with wisdom, yes, but also be proactive about pursuing such things. So with listening prayer, one of the ways that uh, my wife and I have uh, done this is uh, 
often with people, one, one practice that we'll use with this is um, sort of two movements. Right? We're seeing kind of word and spirit together. Two movements. Uh, the first movement would be when we're feeling anxiety or I'm counseling someone and they're in a rough patch, they're, they're having a rough time. The first movement of prayer would be, Jesus, what is the fear that I'm afraid of right now? Or what is the lie that the enemy wants me to believe? And to take some time and to listen. And to listen and see, sometimes I get like a word, sometimes I get an image, sometimes I get, sometimes I get nothing, and that's fine. I don't have to force it, but oftentimes I find it's like Jesus speaks. And then the second movement would be, all right, Jesus, what is the truth? Oh, we don't need to do the discussion yet. We'll get there in a minute, but uh, we can remove that slide. But Jesus, what is the truth that you want to say, that you want to speak in here? And I'll give you an example of this in my life uh, this last year. Um, one of the biggest personal challenges for me this last year, it wasn't COVID, it wasn't leading our church, that it wasn't national polarization, all that. Like those were big and those were hard, but the biggest personal challenge I had this last year was I, I went blind in one eye, in my right eye. And the doctors were concerned that it was likely coming from my other eye as well. And I found myself facing what, for about six to eight months, facing what looked like I was going blind blindness and in the midst of that now I I found myself like scared angry God please don't let me go blind you know my first prayer is God please don't let me go blind but going to some of these practices that my wife and I have done you know I found myself going for walks through our neighborhood at night I found myself praying and doing this same prayer and and I found myself asking Jesus, what is the fear that I'm afraid of? What's beneath the fear, you know? And obviously, like, okay, I'm afraid of going blind. But what I found, like, through listening prayers, I found the Spirit begin to unveil different layers of my heart. And I found the Spirit revealing, like, you're afraid. Like, I found myself realizing, like, I'm afraid of not being able to see my kids' faces as they grow older, as they grow up. I found the Spirit revealing, like, I'm afraid of no longer being able to read. One of my favorite pastimes, if you know me, like not being able to read books is like the end of the world for me, right? I, listening to them, on, it's not the same thing for me, like not being able to read. I found myself questions of, I'm afraid of not being able to uh, write. Like I love writing. I'm afraid of not being able to preach and to teach and the things that I feel like God's called me to. I don't know how to lead our church in the ways I feel like God's called me to in the season ahead if, I, if I'm not able to see. Now, I'm not saying that I couldn't adapt. I'm not saying that, you know, um, anything. But I found the Holy Spirit beginning to peel back these layers of my heart and reveal like, dude, there are fears beneath the fear. And what it really came down at the end of the day was the fear that God, you abandoned me. And the lie God, what's the lie? And the lie from the enemy, God's abandoned you. You're, the things that you thought were calling, were thought were about, the, like they're over, they're done. You're on your own. And, and, and in the midst of all that, I ran through that and, and realizing, man, if, if this is really calling, then did I mess up? Did I blow up? And then on the flip side though, then praying, okay, well, Jesus, what's the truth? And through listening prayer and taking time to carve out and listen to the Spirit and let him blow into the sails of my, my lungs and my life, I heard the voice of Jesus saying, 
I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm with you. I'm for you. And I found the Spirit ministering to me a way that moved me, what I would say, like moved me from what if to even if, right? That moved me from what if I go blind to going, even if I go blind, like I'm good, I got you, and that means I've got everything, right? And moving my heart to a deeper place of trust, the question I felt Jesus asked me on the true side was, do you trust me? And realizing, yeah, kind of, but I don't know. You know, like, like can you, kind of the believe, help my unbelief. Like, I believe, help my unbelief. I found Jesus peeling back layers of my heart where I didn't really trust him. I found areas where I thought my vocation and my calling to minister and to be a pastor and to write and these things, ways that those had potentially become an idol that like, it was like, dude, if that goes away, I don't know where I'm at with you, God. And I found God stripping those away and pulling those away and getting my heart to a place going, even if, Like, even if I can't see my kids' faces as they grow up, even if I can't preach and write and lead our church in the ways that I know how, like, even if, all it was like, like, I got you. And my theme verse throughout the season became Job. Like, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And I also found myself realizing, man, blindness is the end of the world. Like, I've gotten to know people who are as well. And, and, and like, going, dude, God is God. I'm alive. That's thankful. Like, and here's my point, though, for this is going, uh, and, and things are actually good now. The last few months, things have stabilized. The doctors, there's good. There's hope. There's, there's uh, things are in a much better place now than they were for six to eight months prior. But here's my point is when it comes to listening to prayer, the prayer that, that was, that blew into my sails in a much deeper and richer way than just, God, I'm afraid of going blind like creating space for the spirit of God to minister to my heart and to reveal some of my deepest fears, to reveal some of the lies of the enemy that were happening that season and to hear the voice of Jesus affirming the truth of scripture that he would never leave me or forsake me and actually turning that into a place where we're talking about spiritual formation. I found the spirit of God forming me in this season, even in the midst of some of the, this, hardest trials in, in my life in recent years. And the spiritual practices became a place not to perform for God, but a place to be present to God. It became a place not to bring my goodness, but to bring my honesty and to open myself to going, I want to be found. Jesus, I want you to find me even in these hard places, even in these broken places, even in these places. And so what I would like to do right now as we, we wrap this up is um, to guide you through some listening and prayer. I don't know where you're at tonight. Like there may be some of you who are coming into tonight with, uh, you could be in a great spot and things are going great and that's great. Uh, it's still a good thing to do there as well. And there could be some of you who are in a, in a rough patch. I know this last year has been exhausting. We talk about summer recharge and part of the goal of recharging is to bring ourselves before the God who is able to recharge us, to speak into us, to fill us, to, to be present to us. Not only us being present to him, but God being present to us. And so if you'd be so bold, I would invite you to, however you prefer to posture yourself in prayer, but to enter into that. And I'm going to guide us through those two movements. I would invite you to join and participate with me. Holy Spirit, I confess my ignorance. I don't know the circumstances and the situations that people here are coming in to tonight with. I don't know 
the areas where the battery is depleted and they feel the, the need to be recharged. I don't know the areas where they're exhausted and they need your wind and their sails. Um, but Holy Spirit, I, I'm just relying on the, the reality that you do, that you know each of us in this room better than we know ourselves. And so I kind of want to create some time right now just for us to ask you to minister to us, us to kind of open our sails and, and ask that you would blow and, and, and fill with your presence, with your voice, Jesus. So Jesus, you are ascended, you are on high, you are exalted over all of heaven and earth, and you are present to us through your spirit even now. And so I want to pray in this first movement, uh, Holy Spirit, if there are any fears that people right now have, God, if there are any lies that the enemy is seeking to speak into their lives, I want to ask that you would bring clarity, that you would bring those to the surface, whether through an image or a word or just your presence kind of revealing directly to them. God, I want to create some space here, 30 seconds or so, a minute, just, just some space that we could listen to you. And spirit of the living God, we invite you to speak and to reveal any of the fears or the lies that we're facing right now. Jesus, you are seated on high, the right hand of God. Again, you are exalted over all of heaven and earth, and you are with us as your people through your presence, God, through your spirit. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would minister to us now and speak your truth. Uh, spirit of the living God, again, I pray that you would affirm whether a word from scripture or your voice, God, a truth that, that you want to communicate to us and the particularity of our circumstances. Jesus, we just wanna create some space now for you to blow under our sails with your, your truth, not only the revelation of what's wrong, but the affirmation of, of your voice and what's right. So we create some space now, God, just to listen for you and ask that you would speak and move amongst us by your spirit. Jesus, it is in your name and under your authority and for your glory, God, that we pray. All these things, amen. Man, that's so good. So good. Thank you, Joshua Ryan Butler, for sharing. And for those listening, I just encourage you in the days and the weeks ahead to just to practice what Joshua Ryan Butler invited us into, what the Bible invites us into, which is this deeply authentic conversation with God about whatever it is. We don't have to clean ourselves up. We do have to be honest, though, because that's the only way God can encounter the real us. I'm reminded of that famous quote by C.S. Lewis, who said, the prayer before all prayers is this, Lord, may it be the real I who speaks to you, and may I speak to the real you. 
So that's just a powerful invitation to bring our full honest selves before God and just to remind ourselves that he is a pursuing God. I pray that that helps you in the coming weeks, in the coming months as we practice it. I know it helps me and is already helping me. So thanks for joining us. And we'll see you next week when we finish out our sermon series with our final name of Jesus, the final title, Christ or Messiah. So we'll see you next week.